From I Who Have Never Known Men by Jacqueline Hartman. Perhaps one of the dead women I'd seen in the bunkers was my mother, and my father was lying mummified near the bars of one of the prisons. All the links between them and me have been severed. There's no continuity, and the world I have come from is utterly foreign to me. I haven't heard its music. I haven't seen its paintings. I haven't read its books except for the handful I found in the refuge, and of which I understood little. I know only the stony plain, wandering, and the gradual loss of hope. I am the sterile offspring of a race about which I know nothing, not even whether it has become extinct. Perhaps, somewhere, humanity is flourishing under the stars, unaware that a daughter of its blood is ending her days in silence. There is nothing we can do about it. Welcome to the Art Wife Book Club. I'm your host, Hannah Harley. Hi, hello, Art Wives, and welcome to February's episode of the Book Club in which we discuss Jacqueline Hartman's 1995 book, I Who Have Never Known Men. After our first venture into song lyrics in last month's episode, we're back to literature this month, and we're back to uh, the unnamed first-person narrator, too, which evidently is the specialty of this podcast. I didn't realize how much I was drawn to that in fiction until it became a pattern here on the pod. So anyway, after this, my second read of the book, I decided that it's officially in my top 10 favorite books of all time, so why wait? Let's get into it. Okay, so a note before we dive in. The landscape of this book, as it were, is one of no chapters, no sections. There aren't even any occasional indentations or paragraph breaks. It's just 164 pages of uninterrupted uniform story, which is interesting. I'll be honest and say that I'm not really sure why it is that the writer made this choice, which isn't to say that I don't like it because I do enjoy this unbroken reading experience, but usually there's something, the structure of the work is echoing in the content of the work, but uh, that doesn't quite seem to be true here because our narrator's life actually is, as we'll see, segmented quite distinctly. So I haven't yet found a satisfying reason that the author might have set up the book this way. If anyone has any thoughts on that, go to the link in the show notes and share them with me. There's a form at the bottom of that web page where you can send a message about the books we discuss here. Now, the narrator opens this book with a direct address to the reader. The tone is pretty familiar and conversational, though the narrator is a bit formal by nature. And she's establishing for us that she's at the end of her life, that she rarely speaks anymore, and that she's sick and in significant pain. And she shares a lot of unsettling details, like the fact that she can't remember if she's ever laughed in her life. We see later that she has, but the fact that she can't remember doing so 
helps kind of set the set the stage, set the tone for this uncanny life experience that this woman is going to take us through. And perhaps the most revelatory and shocking piece of information she shares is that she realizes for the very first time that she is in fact human and capable of love and suffering. So here's what she has to say about it. Quote, never before had I been so devastated. I would have sworn it couldn't happen to me. I'd seen women trembling, crying, and screaming, but I'd remain unaffected by their tragedy. A witness to impulses I found unintelligible, remaining silent even when I did what they asked of me to assist them. Admittedly, we were all caught up in the same drama that was so powerful, so all-embracing, that I was unaware of anything that wasn't related to it, but I had come to think that I was different. And now, racked with sobs, I was forced to acknowledge too late, much too late, that I too had loved that I was capable of suffering and that I was human after all. So, you know, <laughs> yikes. And then we learn that what she's doing here is writing a record of her life, which she describes here, quote, I realized then that I never thought about the past. I lived in a perpetual present and I was gradually forgetting my story. At first, I shrugged telling myself that it would be no great loss since nothing had happened to me. But soon I was shocked by that thought. After all, if I was a human being, my story was as important as that of King Lear or of Prince Hamlet that William Shakespeare had taken the trouble to relate in detail. I made the decision almost without realizing it. I would do likewise. Over the years, I'd learned to read fluently, Writing is much harder, but I've never been daunted by obstacles. I do have paper and pencils, although I may not have much time. Now that I no longer go off on expeditions, no occupation calls me. So I decided to start at once. I went into the cold store, took out the meat that I would eat later, and left it to defrost, so that when hunger struck, my food would soon be ready. Then I sat down at the big table and began to write. Which um is annoying because, my God, imagine that. Having the idea to write and then sitting down to do it that same day. Like, okay, lady, we get it. You're disciplined and focused. God. So the narrator starts her recollections in what she calls the bunker, which is a windowless underground cage imprisoning 40 women under constant surveillance by male guards with whips. And the narrator has been in this bunker since she was a baby or something. We're never given a precise age because no one knows it, but in any case, it's before memory for her. And she's setting a lot of crucial and also extremely uncanny groundwork for us. So we learn that all the other women are older than her. And they had contact with what we know as the regular world. They all lived into adulthood, a kind of life that we would recognize with freedom and marriages and kids and all of that. But our narrator was basically born into this situation. And so she has truly no education, experience, or external stimulation of any kind. 
All they do in the bunker is eat and sleep and there are no books or clocks or mirrors. She's literally never even seen the sky or dirt or grass. And the other women don't talk with her much. They don't share knowledge or stories with her even when she asks. Um, the guards also ignore them. They refuse to make eye contact with the prisoners. They refuse to answer or even acknowledge their questions or their pleas. So the prisoners long ago stopped even trying to interact with the guards because they were completely worn down by their just endless indifference. It's like trying to squeeze blood from a stone. And on the page, we never see the guards touch the prisoners, but they do have complete control over them with the use of the whips, which they crack when anyone does anything that they don't allow, including things like having physical contact with one another, expressing any kind of elevated emotion, but also doing things like trying to end their situation, like by slowly starving themselves to death. And the whips will crack, but they never touch the women's skin. But the women all understand that they were most likely tortured by these whips before when they were brought here. And they were in what they assume was a drugged, kind of hardly conscious state because none of them remember the transition from their normal lives to the imprisonment. And also they had wounds and stripes on their body when they first came to in the bunker. So the, the whips as a tool of force was probably established in this kind of hazy, unremembered state when they were captured. So when we meet her, the narrator has been in the bunk for over a decade already. And we don't know how long it's been exactly there are no clocks or calendars and because they can't even see the sun there's no way at all to mark the passage of time and because of the nature of her existence our narrator is experiencing a stunted development she never really goes through puberty so they can't even use that as an approximate marker of age and the other women assume she's anywhere between 13 and 16 years old. And it's at this point that we meet her. And because the women inside decline to answer any of her questions or share information with her, she discovers and then starts cultivating her own inner life. For rather the first time, it seems, She's turning her attention to the guards outside the bars, who we understand are the only men our narrator has ever seen. Um, between their presence and the incomplete snippets of conversation she's heard from the women, she starts to construct increasingly elaborate fantasies about contact with the only young-looking guard in the group. And these are sexual fantasies, to be sure, but that's kind of the least important or least interesting feature about them. What's really compelling about this is that this is where she learns both how to make something for herself, how to make a story. So she learns the joy of art, basically. And also this is where she frees herself from the entirely made-up hierarchy that has emerged among the women 
in which the older women have a sort of dominion over the younger women. And our narrator comes to recognize this as the farce that it is, because they're all in the same situation, which means they're all equally powerless. But it's here where she does also start interacting and connecting with some of the other prisoners for seemingly the first time. Most notably, one woman named Anthea, who becomes her closest friend in the group and also her teacher. And another thing she's doing here for the first time is exercising her intellect, really, and discovering what she can do with her mind and finding that there's a huge chasm between taking reality for granted, which is what we can assume she's been doing for years now, and actively considering her existence. She's thinking about big concepts like time. This is where she learns to count her heartbeats to create her own internal clock. And generally speaking, she's just exercising her personal power for the first time. Lots of firsts and lots of really significant developmental leaps in a very few number of pages. And this is cool structurally because we're on, what, page 13? And we're already witnessing an awakening, a coming to consciousness in our main character. And I like this because these are the kinds of character developments around which a writer could orient an entire book. This kind of self-actualization that we're seeing right now at the very front of the book could easily and does often feature as the climax of a plot. Like, everything in the story works toward this type of awareness and revelation. But I love it because this writer is like, no, 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 we gotta start with the awakening. We're not about to stumble through three quarters of a book with some asshole who's sleepwalking through her life. And besides, what else does this girl have to do but think? Which is amazing for us as readers, but uh, extremely unfortunate for the narrator because her life blows and... All the things she has to think about are truly haunting and unbearable. Honestly, like the way this is written and the reality of this situation are so vicious. I could feel my body constricting from the powerlessness of it. Like when she's talking with Anthea and they're discussing that the narrator will likely be the last of them to die because she's the youngest. Here's their conversation. Quote, she stared at me for ages without saying a word. Since I had greatly exercised my imagination of late, I could guess her thoughts. One day, I would be alone in the huge gray room. In the morning, a guard would pass me my food, which I'd cook on the hot plate, and I'd eat, sleep, and die alone, without having understood our fate or why it had been inflicted on us. Truly harrowing, and... The way they're so completely and definitely shut out from any information about their situation or the outside world is bone-chilling, and it turns out unrelenting. So this is what's interesting about books like this. We saw it in my year of rest and relaxation, too, where there's ostensibly not a lot happening like, in this book, the narrator directly tells us that hardly anything ever happens. But also, actually, there's so much happening for us as readers. And um, 
the way this is achieved is by prioritizing the inner lives of the characters. It's the difference between plot-driven stories and character-driven stories, right? Like, it's the difference between watching The Morning Show and watching Succession, which isn't completely fair. I mean, I don't mean to imply that everything that's character-driven is amazing and everything that's plot-driven is useless trash. That's certainly not the case, but... When too much attention is focused on the sensation of the plot and the action, that is how you end up making a show that's as sorry but dumb and bad as something like the second season of The Morning Show, which I just finished watching, which is why I'm even talking about it because, like, who cares? But the function there is that it's all about events, like capital C, capital E, current events, and then you just shove your characters around on the page or on the screen to fit into those events. There's little development of who the characters are. You're just marching them around from one plot point to the next to the next. And then you compare that with something like Succession where, li I mean, literally nothing happens. It's the same thing over and over again. And yet because of the richness of the characters, there's a lot to engage with. And speaking of plot, just when our narrator is starting to be dismayed, at the fact that all of her new knowledge is sort of amounting to nothing and not actually changing much at all. About their experience in the bunker, something happens. While the guards are, I think, bringing them food, was it? Pro probably, because that's all that ever happens. When the guards are about to open their prison door to bring them food, a siren goes off and all the guards run out. But because they were about to open the cage, the keys are still there. So the narrator grabs the keys and opens their cage and they all eventually pour out of this bunker and up into the outside world. And the guards have completely vanished, never ever to be seen again. The women are frantic and overwhelmed, of course, and especially our narrator because she's the only one in this group who's experiencing everything for the first time like the sky for god's sakes and rain and staircases and cupboards and she's not just seeing you know new foods and tools and furniture for the first time she's also beginning to have brand new experiences like the sensation of being cold or really profoundly being alone for the first time. That happened when she was in the toilet the women built after they got free. Imagine being a teenager and never once having been alone. Everything for her is brand new. And um, think about what it would be like to be the writer of this book. You have to really be alert to be able to create something like this because you can't take anything for granted. For instance, when the narrator says on page 30 that she's panting as if she's been running, this is before they escape, the writer has to recognize that and interject and say, running? I had never run. As the writer, you would have to revisit every line, every reference, every turn of phrase, and ask yourself if a character in this situation would actually have any idea that the thing you just referenced even exists. 
And to be honest, it does sort of make the writing a little stilted at times. Like this is the one thing in this book that occasionally drew me out of the story because it was a little contrived sometimes how she'd have to be like, oh yes, jigsaw puzzles, Anthea had told me about those. Or, you know, like, oh yeah, the women had talked about X. So even though I'd never seen it before, that's how I was able to identify it here in this account. It's a little clunky at times, but we have to take her at her word and ultimately it is believable because we know this narrator is desperate for knowledge and also has very little stimulation in her life. Um, so she listens very carefully whenever new information is shared and her mind is, you know, not oversaturated to the point of absurdity like all of ours are. So her memory is super sharp. So even though our narrator is the only one experiencing these basics for the first time, she still emerges as a leader and soon enough they're figuring out how to go off exploring. So they pack as many supplies as they can from the bunkers, mostly food, and they start trekking across the landscape. And whenever there's a, a crest in, or a hill, the narrator is the one to rush ahead to see if there's anything on the vista, but there almost never is. It's just the same expanse of rocks and scrub. And after they've been trekking for God knows how long, they do end up finally seeing another cabin, like the one they've emerged from. But this time when they descend, they find that the doors of the cage are still locked and all the prisoners are dead inside. Or all the prisoners inside are dead. I mean, I guess they were probably dead inside too, but uh, here's what she has to say about it. It was the half light of nighttime, but I could see the cage. The floor was strewn with dead women. They seemed to be everywhere, lying across the mattresses, flung on top of each other, groups of them gripping the bars in heaps, scattered in an appalling chaos. Some were naked, the dresses of others were in tatters. They were in frightful attitudes, tormented, their mouths and eyes open, their fists clenched as if they'd fought and killed one another in the madness from which death had snatched them. Here, the siren had gone off in the middle of the artificial night, the door was locked and the guards, of course, hadn't bothered to open it. The women had tried. They died of grief long before hunger had killed them. Without food, furious and desperate, how many days had they spent clawing at the bars with their remaining strength, trying to prize open the lock without keys or tools, their fingers bleeding, trying to achieve the impossible. Sick, crazed, lying down exhausted, and then getting up again to attack the steel with their bare hands, screaming, crying, dazed, sometimes recovering their wits to contemplate their fate and flee it in fury. And now they stank, distended, putrid, and green, infested with maggots that swarmed over their decaying bodies, a grotesque image of the fate that could have been ours had it not been for an incredible stroke of luck. And we come to find out just how rare the situation of our women was that they were able to get free because over the course of the book, they'll find more bunkers like this than we could even count. And always, every single time until the very end, all of the prisoners inside are dead because they were trapped there. 
Sometimes the prisoners are women. Sometimes the prisoners are men. Sometimes they can see signs of their struggle in the positions of their corpses. Other times the bodies are all calmly, neatly arranged because they were just quietly awaiting their deaths. But in every single case, the doors are locked and the prisoners are dead. So there's nothing else to do except for the women to pay their respects to the dead and then restock with supplies from the bunker. And this is what they do for two years. They nomad around the land, searching for something, finding nothing new. And after a couple of years, there are two deaths in the group. Dorothy, the oldest woman, dies of old age. And then another woman hangs herself in one of the bunkers because she's gotten ill and she was in extreme pain. So the women decide it's time to stop their exploration. And they set up a little village. They build, you know, their own structures, kind of houses to live within. And at this point, they've pretty much all lost hope of finding any quote unquote civilization. And even their smaller objective of hoping to find another bunker of prisoners who had been able to get free like they did, their hope in that possibility has also dwindled down to almost nothing. And the inevitable question, of course, is, you know, what may have happened if they did find other people? There might have been a flurry of excitement, like there always was upon a new discovery. But then, presumably, they would exchange stories about their experiences in the bunker, and those experiences would be exactly identical, and they would have no new information or insight, and they would be left just as clueless as they were otherwise. Um, this lack of hope is worth noting, not just as part of the plot as we move through it, but also from a craft standpoint, because every book we've read up to now has followed a fairly traditional plot structure with, you know, the intro, rising action, climax, and tying up. But this book is different and cool because Firstly, we start, as we said, with the main character's self-realization, which in many books can actually serve as the climax or even the re resolution. And then now, halfway through the book, the narrator tells us that the group as a whole has pretty much lost all hope. Not just they feel hopeless, but also there is kind of objectively no hope for them. They aren't going to find anything there will be no resolution. And half this is unique because halfway through a book is usually when the desire for an object or an outcome, the searching, the reaching toward, all of that is intensified usually at this point. But here, the writer has completely doused all of that. There's nothing more to look for. There is no revelation coming. There's nothing else to seek. So really this book offers an excellent lesson in how it's possible to achieve satisfying storytelling outside of traditional plot structure because this one follows none of the kind of established rules or guidelines and yet the book remains compelling all the way through to the end. And I was also thinking while reading these sections how important setting up the context is because the narrator is often saying things like, 
we didn't know it then, but X, Y, Z, or we would never find X, or it wasn't until later that I would realize why. And usually I find this irritating because it's the writer inserting themselves in the story rather than maintaining the perspective of their narrator. And usually it happens unconsciously on the part of the writer. They get impatient and want to share something with us that they know, but that we and their characters don't know. But here it functions and it makes sense as part of the story because the first thing the writer did as the narrator was established for us as readers that the purpose of this text was for a woman nearing the end of her days to recount and record her life and reflect back. So we know that she knows the whole story already. And when she hops forward in time or has that kind of omniscience, there's a reason for it, which really matters a lot for the experience of reading it. So here the women are, they build their civilization and they exist there for years and years. And our narrator is that annoying person on vacation who doesn't know how to relax. Like she keeps looking for little projects for herself and tries to fill her time. But always what emerges is the most true thing in their existence, which is absence and lack and nothingness and void. And eventually our narrator comes to describe their quote-unquote freedom outside the bunker as actually just another type of imprisonment. Their lives continue to be just brutally infuriating because they're so senseless. And as they move about this external world, they only continue to rack up new disappointments in their search for knowledge. And so most of the women end up just sort of waiting to die there isn't much else to structure their lives around. They have no predators and there also isn't any prey. Their physical needs are entirely met by the supplies in the bunkers. The narrator, you know, busies herself by learning how to build homes and structures and do woodworking, but no matter how hard she tries, she can't come up with new things to build or new needs for the group. And there isn't that much wood in the landscape to work with anyway. But there is one job that emerges for the narrator, which is the compassionate killing of her fellow inmates. So when a woman becomes sick, they want to be killed because there's no medicine or pain management or anything like that. And also, Obviously, these women, like we said, have very little will to live anyway. So rather than die brutal, protracted deaths or be forced to kill themselves to end their pain and suffering like the first woman did, they wish to be killed. And the narrator is the one to do it because the other women, you know, can't stomach it. And here she is describing it. She says, quote, I received that caress several times. The only one I was able to tolerate, the silent gratitude of a woman receiving death at my hands. No one wanted to endure pain, and I think they were in a hurry to die. I don't know how many I killed. I who count everything, that was the one thing I didn't count. Each time, even when they were contorted with the most violent pain, I saw their tormented faces relax as I was about to strike. And it didn't make me cry because I sensed their haste and their relief. It was only at the moment of death that they admitted their despair 
and rushed headlong toward the great dark doors that I opened for them, leaving the sterile plain where their lives had gone awry without a backward glance, eager to embrace another world which perhaps didn't exist, but they preferred nothingness to the futile succession of empty days. And I know that at that moment, they loved me. And this fact that the narrator is the only one among them who's able to perform this task highlights and underscores a basic truth about her, which is her remove and her difference from all the other women. This is something that she's always felt in this group, that she has never truly belonged. Um, there are a couple of reasons why. It's her age, of course, and also her seemingly higher level of natural intelligence. But kind of most importantly, it's what her age means about her experience of being a person. The other women are encased all the time in this intense grief over what they've lost. But because the narrator has no memory of the former world, she doesn't experience that same grief. She only experiences absence from hearing about it. And, you know, it's interesting because if she hadn't been part of a group of grown women like she is, if all of the prisoners had been her age, then they wouldn't have even experienced that specific absence necessarily. They would just think their lives were what the world was. Of course, they would have human impulses that would be unmet or interrupted or foiled, but they wouldn't know anything at all about bathtubs or mirrors or flowers or bread. I mean, as prisoners, they wouldn't have even known about the sun, for Christ's sake. So she is she is separate, and this is why she kind of feels herself to be not quite human, and why she's surprised at the end of her life, a slash at the beginning of the book, to discover that she is in fact human and can feel, you know, the same depth of emotions as the other women. So back at the village, as predicted, all the other women die before her and our narrator ends up completely alone. But before she does, there's one woman left who is the last to die. And we understand that this woman is dying essentially from a death of her spirit, from this lack of will to live. And the narrator has a moment when she's thinking about how sad this woman's death is and she wants to say something comforting and she's thinking about it but <laughs> instead she just blurts out basically like i can't wait till you die so i can go off exploring again so yeah nice thought or whatever but unsurprisingly our girl is not too skilled in the realm of compassionate communication and the other woman like heavy sighs in exasperation and goes like oh okay just wait a little bit i'm gonna die very soon so could you just try not to abandon me before then you huge bitch which the narrator agrees to but they are both just waiting for her to die and when at last she does the narrator just immediately sets off exploring and guess what it's more of the same <laughs> shocking so it's the same landscape, the same weather, the same bunkers, the same dead prisoners. She does make some new discoveries like the bus, but 
She doesn't come up with anything that answers a single question. She literally still doesn't even know what planet she's on. And so when she does come to find these, whatever it is, maybe guards quarters or the living space of someone in charge or higher up on the previous hierarchy of whatever, she decides to go ahead and, and make it her home, make it her home base. This place has carpet, it has books, it has a bathtub and warm water, a microwave, and it has paper and writing utensils. And this is where we loop back to the beginning of the book where she's told us that she's reflecting on her life and writing it down in case, you know, God knows when some other person happens to find her. And as we get closer and closer to the end of the book, no resolution or explanation emerges. In fact, a few pages before the end, the narrator says, quote, I have understood nothing about the world in which I live. She says that at a certain point, she stopped trying to figure it out. She stopped asking pointless questions. She's lived her entire life and nothing has been answered. Only new questions have formed. And this is how she dies. I mean, she's still alive at the end of the book because she's the one writing the record, but we know that she's sick and we know that she's planning to kill herself like she did for so many of the other women. And I'm so obsessed with how this author kind of released every last trapping of the entire construct of a book. She was like, there will be absolutely no chapters, hardly any characters, barely anything happens. There is zero resolution or even any payoff. What we're going to do instead is we're just going to laser focus our attention on how this one singular woman interfaces with her life, which like, yes, thank you, love you, bitch, that's amazing. This one woman's frustrated, thwarted, pointless life. And it's so worthy of our attention because, you know, what's crazy is this book, it feels fantastical or dystopian or post-apocalyptic. The scenario here on its face presents as so extreme. But I'm really thinking about how at core, this book mirrors our human lives as they are now pretty directly. Like we find ourselves in the situations that we find ourselves in. We don't really know why we're here or what the purpose or goal or broader picture is. We can theorize and make guesses, and we do, about what human life, you know, generally is for and what our individual lives specifically might be for. But the truth is that we have absolutely no idea. And we too, like this society, have built arbitrary hierarchies and systems of subjugation. And we too, like these women, look for and create little ways to make our lives just a little bit better every day. But we don't really know why, and we don't really understand who's in charge, quote unquote, or what's behind all of this animating it. And so inside of that very confusing and opaque framework that we find ourselves in, we do what this character has done. We find our little bits of agency and will. We make connections with the people we feel compelled by and drawn to, and we make art about our experiences. So our lives 
broadly speaking, are really not that different from the life of this character. And one place we see this in the text is when the narrator finds her first ever book in The Belongings of the Guards on the Bus. It's a book about gardening, and she reads it so much she memorizes it. And she says, quote, I read the entire book carefully and became an expert on grafting roses, which made me laugh. And I like this because the truth of the matter is that grafting roses is clearly pointless for her, but it's kind of pointless for us too. Like we at least have access to roses, which the narrator doesn't, but ultimately grafting roses, like everything else, is just something we do to fill our lives up. Even if it's someone's job and they do it to make money, all of that is still just a part of the construct we've made to fill our time here on earth. And it's this, exactly as described by our narrator. She says, quote, I read and reread the book. I acquired a perfectly useless knowledge, but I enjoyed it. I felt as if I had embellished my mind, and that made me think of jewels, those objects which women had used to adorn their beauty in the days when beauty had a purpose. This thing she's saying about her life, which is ostensibly so different from our own and so unrecognizable, is actually a perfectly relevant description of everything that we're doing all the time. So I think then that this book is really primarily just a tribute to the silly, gorgeous, useless, hopeful things we all do as humans to fill our lives. In my mind, the author is saying, look, if we change the context, we can see how unserious and absurd our situation is. And yet, we make things beautiful. We hunger for knowledge. We want to adorn our minds and ourselves and our environments. That's just our impulse. And why? Who knows? But we've always done it and we'll always do it. And that alone is enough. That alone makes a story. That alone is worthy of not just book length attention, but of a life. And I find it really moving. Like the close con contemplation despite the pointlessness is so touching and even though it could be or it sounds like it would be it's not really a nihilistic or bitter or defeated book in fact the context it gives us in which to kind of see our own lives in a different way somehow makes our own absurdity that much more endearing somehow so that is I Who Have Never Known Men by Jacqueline Hartman what a singular book what a special book. And thank you, my dears, as always, for your presence here. Now, we talked about this in last month's episode, but a reminder that in 2024, we will be alternating each month between reading a book together and studying short form works like essays and short stories and song lyrics. So because we did a book this time, we will be returning to the shorts edition next month. So no book announcement this time, and I'll see you here for next month's episode on Tuesday, March 5th. Farewell! Thanks for joining the Artwife Book Club. This podcast is a project from Artwife, a digital, literary, and arts magazine, publishing essays, short stories, visual art, and video art. Explore the magazine at artwifemag.com. See you next time.